You, Father, who alone are worthy of all of our love, we ask now that you would cause us to not only know your precious word, but to retain it in our hearts, that it might fuel fires of our affection for you, and that it might extend a vision of service for you, and that it might give us a holy outlook on all circumstances of life. And Father, that it might burden us even deeper for those who do not know you, and that it might make us from glory to glory more like your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. May it always, Lord, be our desire to follow in your chosen path so that we, like David, might say, I delight to do thy will, O my God. We know, Father, as you will demonstrate again to us this morning through the life of your Son, that your way is not always a way which is free from pain or free from suffering. But we do know that even through the path of affliction, there is always peace and light. There's always your strength your guidance and your grace to sustain us. So Father, I would pray that um, we would face each new day without any fear of any kind, knowing that you have told us in the Psalms that the steps of a good man or good woman are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Teach us and remind us continually, Father, that it is only while we are in your way that we may be found useful and helpful to others. And Father, now I ask that you would go before your servant May the thoughts of my heart and the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ex pleasing and acceptable in your sight. May we focus on what your Holy Spirit has to say to each of us individually through this study of your word. For we pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, uh, the title for this lesson, number seven in our study, is Pre-Written Pathways. And we are going to discuss two journeys which were made by Mary and Joseph during the time of the very early childhood of Mary's precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to consider this special family's trip, first of all, from Bethlehem to Egypt, and then we're going to look at their trip from Egypt to Nazareth. And as we do this, we're going to find again how some Old Testament prophecies, maybe some that will surprise you, were fulfilled, found their literal fulfillment as young Jesus was divinely moved from place to place. Now, as we look, first of all, at the trip from Bethlehem to Egypt, we're going to consider three subdivisions. We're going to look at Joseph's withdrawal, then we're going to discuss Herod's wrath and Rachel's weeping. So first of all, let's look at the trip from Bethlehem to Egypt, Joseph's withdrawal. And for this, if you would look with me at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Matthew 2:13 And when they were departed <clears throat> behold that was the, they there was the wise men when the wise men were departed behold the angel of the lord appeareth to joseph in a dream saying arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into egypt and be thou there until i bring thee word for herod will seek the young child to destroy him when he arose he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet by the prophet saying out of Egypt have I called my son the coming of the wise men or the magi to worship the Lord Jesus when he was about two years old and present him with very generous gifts 
was no doubt a great encouragement to Mary and Joseph. It would have helped to confirm to them in just one more additional way the prophetic significance of their son. However, their time of encouragement and their time of rejoicing was rather short-lived because no sooner had the Magi left their home there in Bethlehem than Joseph received a second angelic revelation from God in the form of what? A dream. This is his second dream now. And Joseph, in this dream, was told of great impending danger. Herod, Herod the Great, was going to seek out the, the child Jesus, not to worship him, you know, as he had hit very hypocritically told the wise men back in uh, verse 8 of this chapter, but he was going to find him, seek him out in order to destroy him. The angel told Joseph, therefore, to take the young child and his mother, Mary, and flee where? Into Egypt. And he was told to remain there. You know, he wasn't told how long he would be there. He just said, the angel said, you are to remain there until you get further word. You know, this is, this is reality, what we see here. So often the sunshine of life is very, very quickly followed by the dark clouds of trouble. Right behind the wonderful blessing of the seeking magi's worship was the seething Herod's wrath. And this is, as I said, this is life. This is the way it is because no one for very long experiences uninterrupted peace and sunshine, right? I mean, you're either in the midst of a trial or you've just come out of a trial or you're about to go into a trial. <laughs> there are troubles and storm clouds around every corner. However, for those who belong to, to Christ, to God, they will find that during the sunshine, during the times of sunshine, he, he very often, very, well, he wants to, it's always his desire to adequately prepare us for those upcoming storms. The extravagant gifts which had been given to uh, the Lord Jesus, to his parents, in effect, by the Magi, made it possible, you see, for Joseph and his family to make the necessary journey into Egypt in order to escape the ominous cruelty of Herod the Great. What would they have done if they hadn't received those gifts during the time of sunshine? They wouldn't have been able to finance and afford the trip to Egypt and their stay there. We're not sure if Joseph would be able to um, work in Egypt for a however long. And I, by the way, I read that they were in Egypt from anywhere from about a year to six years. And we just don't really know. We can't be dogmatic about how long they were in Egypt. But God does oftentimes prepare us for the bad times so that we can be victorious in and through them. And that's why it's so important to be in his word during the times of peace and sunshine so that when those trials come, sometimes when you're in the middle of a trial, it's very hard to even pray, isn't it? And um, so it's often it's good to, to load yourself up and hide God's word in your heart so that that it's in there, and when you're in the trial, sometimes those he'll, the Holy Spirit will just bring verses to your remembrance. Because I know when I've been in trial, sometimes I, I'm crying so much I can't even read God's word. <laughs> My eyes are too blurry. Well, Satan, you know, Satan has always sought to destroy Jesus. Ever since he heard about the coming seed of the woman who would fatally crush his head, his, his purpose has been to destroy Jesus. Even before the Lord was born in a human body, Satan tried to cut off the messianic line. We see that over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And, of course, 
His primary tar target is always the Jewish people because he knew from them would come the Messiah. It makes for a real interesting comparison to realize some of the similarities that we find in the scripture between the account of Moses and his infant deliverance from the wrath of Satan, which was vented through Pharaoh of Egypt. We compare that little account with the story of Jesus and his own childhood deliverance from another of Satan's human instruments, and that was Herod the Great. Moses was actually a prophetic type. Remember how I told you there's three kinds of prophecies? There's direct prophecies and then there's type prophecies, which are like picture prophecies. Well, Moses is a picture prophecy of Christ in many ways. You know, as Moses saved his people from their bondage in Egypt, so the Lord Jesus came to save his people from their bondage to sin. You know, and there's a lot of comparisons. Now, in Moses' situation, the king of Egypt, better known as Pharaoh, tried to halt or stop the fast multiplication of the Jewish people in his land by doing what? Do you remember? Having, all right, slaughtering all the little male baby boys that would be born to the Jewish mothers. He, he told the midwives, those delivering the children, that if a baby boy was was delivered, they were to kill it. Um, and of course, it's interesting that as they, they disobeyed Herod's, I mean Herod, they disobeyed Pharaoh's order just as the Magi disobeyed Herod's command. They didn't return to Herod and tell him where the Christ child was. But uh, anyway, Pharaoh did go ahead, though he didn't succeed through the midwives, he did go ahead and have uh, many of the Jewish male baby boys killed. However, as you know, because you know the story, through God's protective care, Jochebed, Moses' mother, saved her own precious baby boy from destruction. And that's found in Exodus chapter 2. And Moses, of course, eventually became the great deliverer of Israel. Through him, God led Israel out of Egypt. You know, Egypt is always in the scripture a picture of the world. So God led Israel out of the world, out of Egypt, through Moses, in order to escape Satan's evil motive to destroy them, you know, by way of uh, Pharaoh. Well, in providential similarity, Joseph, just like Jochebed, Joseph, by way of divine assistance, he had a dream, he protected Jesus from the hands of wicked men. God, through Joseph, led his son into Egypt in order to escape the same evil motive of Satan, which was then vented through another one of Satan's dupes, Herod the Great. So there's a lot of interesting comparisons there. The trip from Bethlehem in Israel, just south of Jerusalem, the trip from Bethlehem to just the border of Egypt was about 75 miles with then uh, another approximate 100 miles to an inland place of safety. So figure their trip from Mary and Joseph and young Jesus, their trip from Bethlehem to somewhere safe inside of Egypt, and I'll tell you in a minute where I think they probably went, was a probably 175 miles. That was a long trip. And it's very possible that where they went was the Egyptian city of Alexandria which was a city, if you can see it up here on the coast, 
a city that Alexander the Great named for himself. They always like to do that, you know, name cities for themselves. So that's where Alexandria got its title. It was actually a city which Alexander the Great, you know, he was a, he was a great Greek conqueror. He conquered the whole known world just about in uh, just a few years. He started as a young man. He was only like 22 years old when he started his conquering, and he conquered everything there was to conquer by the time he was 33. And he essentially killed himself because he was so bored because there was nothing left to conquer. He wanted to go on and conquer India, but his soldiers were too tired and, and they quit on him, so he, um, he, he drank himself to death is what he did. He choked on his own vomit. Mm. Anyway, he had established this is very interesting. He established the city of Alexandria as a sanctuary for Jewish people living in Egypt. So what we find is that hundreds of years, actually about 350 years before the small Christ child was going to need a place of protection and refuge from Herod the Great, God the Father had arranged people and situations so that a mighty Greek world conqueror, you know, a total unbeliever, had provided a haven of safety for Jewish people. I mean, this is just like God to orchestrate all this and, and have it work out. But you ask the question, why would Alexander, a heathen, a man who worshipped false gods, why would um, he have done this? You know, it, it seems very strange to secular historians. They have no idea why Alexander the Great had this city of refuge for, for Jewish people. However, there is something that was written by Josephus, the famous Jewish historian Josephus, which may shed some light on why Alexander had this city of Alexandria for a, a Jewish haven. The Jewish historian told us that when Alexander marched across the known world, you know, conquering one country after another with unprecedented swiftness, nobody had ever conquered the world quite as fast as he had, Something very strange occurred when he arrived just with his troops, you know, just right outside of the city of Jerusalem. Now, his full intention was, as it had been with every other place he ever conquered, his intention was to march into the city and conquer it, you know, destroy the city and um, conquer the people and Hellenize them, which means kind of make them Greek. <laughs> That was, his, that was his full intention. However, what happened, according to Josephus, is that the high priest of Israel at that time, a godly man named Jadua, went out bravely to meet Alexander and his army, and he did so with great pomp and ceremony. You know, probably had musicians with him and, you know, kind of like a marching band. They went out there, like, to welcome him. And that was very strange under the circumstances when they, they knew he was coming to destroy them. And so that really flattered and impressed Alexander the Great. He had never seen anything quite like this before. However, what really got his attention was when Jadua, the high priest, showed Alexander a copy of the prophet Daniel's writings. And he explained to him how Daniel had predicted Alexander's conquests centuries earlier, a couple hundred years earlier. And he showed him how he even specifically mentioned Alexander himself. And did Daniel do that? 
not by name, but Daniel did predict, of course he was inspired by God, he did predict Alexander and his swift conquest of the world. He is described, Alexander is described by Daniel in chapter 8, verse 21, as a great horn. And he's also described as the first king of the Grecian Empire. The Grecian Empire, Daniel said, would follow the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's exactly what happened. And the first king of the Grecian Empire would be this great horn. And Alexander knew he was that first king. And um, Daniel went on to, to also say that this first king would move and conquer the world with the swiftness of a winged leopard, as you can see hopefully in that picture up there. And that's in Daniel 7, 6. And so guess what? Alexander the Great was really impressed. He was really impressed. And so instead of destroying Jerusalem, he amazingly chose to spare the city, which was very rare for him, and he even went into their temple to offer sacrifices to the God who had revealed such amazing truths to his prophet. However, this didn't mean that Alexander became a true believer. What it meant was that he, really, he showed honor and respect to the Jewish God. He held him in high esteem that he was able to predict the future like that. And so what he did is he added Jehovah God to his list of other gods that he worshipped. But he didn't become a true believer. He didn't believe that Jehovah God was the one and only God. So perhaps this account from Josephus, if it's reliable, and it does make a lot of sense, secular historians cannot explain why Alexander spared Jerusalem and why he then made a city for a Jewish haven. They can't explain it. So this account from Josephus is very interesting and perhaps it explains to us why there was this city of refuge uh, for Mary and Joseph to go to if indeed that's the city they went to, but it would make sense that they did go there to Alexandria. And of course God knew all this and so he's the one that arranged it centuries ahead of time so there was a place that Joseph could take his son. God's son to be safe from Herod. By the time of Jesus Christ, it's estimated that there were about one million Jewish people living in Alexandria. There were many other people who had fled there as well as Joseph and Mary, you know, to get away from Herod and uh, seek a haven. Also, we know from history that um, people not only exited Israel to go to Egypt, but there was the Qumran com community, for example many that um, went to Qumran, which is near the Dead Sea, not a very nice place to live, but there's a lot of caves there, and um, that's where some of the, the monks went, you know, the ones that would preserve the scriptures and wrote the scriptures. Actually, it was in Alexandria, go back to Egypt again now, it was in Alexandria that the uh, Septuagint was written. Now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. With the conquest of the Greeks under Alexander the Great, most of the known world, including the Jewish people, eventually came to speak Greek, you know, as their, as their primary language. Just like so many people in the world today speak English, it's the universal language today. Back in those days, Greek was the universal language. And most Jews eventually, after this Hellenization process, they even forgot how to speak 
and read Hebrew. And so they needed to have the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, in a language that they could then understand, and that language was Greek. And so what happened in Alexandria was that 70 uh, Jewish Bible scholars got together, and these were men who believed that God's word was inspired, I mean, the scriptures were God's inspired word, and, um, and they were very fluent in both Hebrew and Greek, and they got together, a council of 70 men, that's where you get Septuagint, because that's, Septa is the, the Greek word for seven, um, or 70, I should say. And they got together and they, they accomplished this great task of translating the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And so whenever you hear somebody talk about the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that was done in Alexandria. All right, now we know absolutely nothing. We don't know anything about the Lord's stay in Egypt. We don't even, as I told you earlier, we don't really even know how long they stayed in Egypt. Somewhere between one and six years was the best I could come up with for you. Uh, we do know that they stayed there until they uh, were commanded by the angel of the Lord in a dream to return, and that was when Herod the Great died. Matthew 2.15 mentions that the Christ child's stay in Egypt was supernaturally arranged in order to fulfill a type prophecy. Here we again have a picture prophecy, a type prophecy, which was made in two places, Hosea 11.1 1 and Numbers 24.8. And I think I have this, this is fulfillment number eight in our Life of Christ study. I have that in your notes. Hosea 11.1 1 tells us this. It says, when Israel was a child, and here Israel is a prophetic type of Christ, okay? We had Moses is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Christ in many ways. And now what this prophecy is telling us is that Israel, the whole nation of Israel, is also a prophetic picture and type of Jesus Christ. So it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. It's unusual because a lot of times Israel is referred to as her. But here it says, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So that's what Hosea 11.1 1 says. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, and then we're back to Balaam. Can you believe this? That ungodly, materialistic, greedy prophet for profit named Balaam, he actually spoke again God's words in Numbers 24.8. He said God brought him, speaking of the Messiah, Christ, God brought him forth out of Egypt. Now, did Mary and Joseph know, you think, that their move from Bethlehem to Egypt, do you think they knew that that was fulfilling God's prophecy? I doubt it. I, re I really doubt that they knew that that was fulfilling prophecy. Why did they go from Bethlehem to Egypt? Well, because they were obedient servants of God, and God, in a dream, had told Joseph to do so. And he did so, by the way, immediately. He was dreaming. God said through the angel, arise, and it says he arose. I mean, he didn't waste any time. And it's a good thing he didn't because Bethlehem was only five or six miles from Jerusalem. And for all we know, Herod's men might have been on their way. So he, he immediately obeyed. That's a lesson to us. When God tells us something, we shouldn't delay. We need to do it right away. But they didn't probably know that they were fulfilling prophecy. Did Herod, do you think Herod knew that his jealous anger was actually instrumental in fulfilling prophecy? 
Well, I think I can dogmatically say that Herod had no idea that he was fulfilling God's word. He was just reacting from a carnal, wicked heart. Only God really knew what was going on. He was the one who arranged all of the details of the situation so that his beloved son would even in his childhood fulfill every messianic prophecy regarding the first coming. Actually, Hosea's prophecy was saying that the exodus of Israel, which had occurred centuries before, you know, under Moses, was a prophetic type of the Lord's exodus from Egypt with his parents as just a child. So when Israel exited Egypt, you know, under Moses, that was a picture way, 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 way in advance of the time when Jesus, with his parents, would also exit from Egypt. And that's what it says. It says, uh, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. As God had once brought forth the Israelites out of Egypt to be his chosen nation, he also called his beloved son out of Egypt to be his beloved deliverer, his beloved Messiah. The Lord Jesus' life actually summarizes the whole experience of Israel. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, and I think you'll be amazed at some of the things. But actually, the Lord's life, his earthly life, summarizes the whole experience of Israel. This is what makes the Bible so exciting to me and so alive. He came just as his own people did out of Egypt to the promised land, and he did so through the trauma of a trial. And we'll go back to this a little bit later on in this lesson this morning. All right, let's move to, that was uh, Joseph's withdrawal. Let's look at Herod's wrath now as we look at verse 16 of Matthew 2. It says, when Herod, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Herod's hatred of the new threat to his throne began really the minute that the wise men, the Magi, had requested information about the, the new king of the Jews. His entire purpose in asking those Magi to report back to him, you know, the location of the Christ child when they went to Bethlehem and found out where he was living, the whole purpose in finding or asking about that was so that he could destroy him. He had no intention from the very beginning of going to worship him. <clears throat> and then when the Magi did not return to him, having been, of course, forewarned by God in a dream, and by the way, if you count the dreams in Matthew 1 and 2, there's a total of five, five dreams. And again, what is five in the Bible? What's the number five symbolize? Grace. So it's God's grace doing all this warning. But uh, they had been warned in a dream by God not to go back to Herod, and thereby they rightfully obeyed God and not man, didn't they? Just like, the remember, the midwives? Who did they obey? They didn't obey Pharaoh, even though it could have cost their lives. They obeyed God 
rather than man. And, and the wise men were wise in that they also did that. They obeyed God rather than men. Well, Herod's agitation over a potential threat to his throne and how he could think of a two-year-old as a threat to his throne when he was 70 is ridiculous. But anyway, his, his agitation was um, elevated at his displeasure in having been mocked. Notice that word there? Um, that he, he considered that he had been mocked of the wise men. You know, he did not like being disobeyed at all. Well, that, so that just infuriated him even more, and it turned, it turned to a, a mindless, blinding wrath. The scripture said he was exceeding wroth. He was hot to trot. And so he sent forth his henchmen <clears throat> to destroy all the male children and the reason I say male is you don't see that in the English, but in the Greek, the word there, children, is used in the masculine gender. So we know it was indeed all the male baby boys, two years and younger. And not only in Bethlehem, but where else? It says, and in all the coasts thereof. Now that doesn't speak of sea coast because Bethlehem isn't near the sea, but it speaks of not only did they kill all the little two-year-old boys, uh, and under in Bethlehem, but in the areas surrounding Bethlehem as well. And I don't know how far out that went. But see, Herod was being extra cautious. He wanted to make sure he got everyone that was possibly the Christ. It's a terrible, terrible thing. This heartless, tragic massacre by Herod is known as the slaughter of the innocents. And it has been estimated that this brutal incident would have involved, involved approximately the murder of some 25 to 30 little Jewish boys. Although some early church traditions have the figures exaggerated, I think you can read up to um, something like 20,000. But, but most Bible commentators think that's way off, not even 1,000. They figure somewhere between 25 and 30 boys. But even one little boy would be too many, right? It's a horrible, horrible thing. And what makes this crime even worse is that, you know, this isn't even mentioned in secular history because compared to Herod's other atrocities, this was minor. 25 to 30 little kids was nothing when he had thousands killed at other points in time. So it's not even really mentioned. But it was really the, the worst crime of all because his target was the Christ. He knew that. He even called him the Christ. So he was perfect. I mean, this was totally satanic. He was after the Lord's Messiah. Uh, so, so very unwisely and very ruthlessly and arrogantly, Herod set himself against Almighty God by going after his anointed one, his Christ. And you don't set yourself up against God, do you? Do you think you can ever win <laughs> doing that? You know, Herod, Herod thought he was mocked by the wise men. But God says in his word, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I don't think that there can be much doubt, especially among believers, that very short, why very shortly after this slaughter of the innocents, Herod was stricken with a terrible, dreadful disease, and he died. And I think that's because the scripture says, you know, be sure your sins will find you out. Whatsoever man soweth, he will reap. 
and, and Herod reaped what he, well, we know for all eternity he's reaping what he had sown. But listen to the description that Josephus gives us about Herod's death. It, he said, he had ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, ugh, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery or to relief. I think this was a very fitting death for a very wicked, wicked man. A man who only five days before his death gave the decree to put another one of his sons to death, a son named Antipater. And according to Josephus, he also ordered that a member of every Jewish family, a member of every Jewish family should be killed when he died so that there would be widespread mourning at the time of his own death. Now, I don't know if this is the same as when I told you earlier that he said all the nobles would be killed at the time of his death. This is something else I read, and I'm not sure if it's the same thing or not, but a member of every Jewish family should be killed at the time of his death. Isn't that sick? Fortunately, that order was not carried out. I'm glad to report that at least. So that's the end of Herod. Now let's look at Rachel's weeping, verses 17 and 18. It says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy, or Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod, let's see, is that what I'm supposed to no, I stopped there. Okay. Uh, something I read this week, which isn't in your notes, but I found it interesting, is the fact that the, the words you see in verse 17, then was fulfilled, those are not followed by Matthew's usual little phrases, so that, or in order that, or that. You know, he, he usually says that this was done in order that such and such a prophecy would be fulfilled. There's only one other time in his gospel. And remember, this is one of the main phrases we find in Matthew. Remember, he's writing primarily to Jewish people, and he wants to show them over and over again how Jesus is the, the Messiah, he's the king, because he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. So one of the main phrases we find in Matthew's gospel is, this was, this was done so that such and such was fulfilled. Well, in this situation, talking about the slaughter of the innocents, we don't find so that, all right, in order that. We just read the words, then was fulfilled. And the only other time in Matthew's gospel we find it phrased like that is, um, is let's see, where is it? It's in Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10. That again, that there eliminates either one of those two conjunctions conjunctive phrases exp expressing divine purpose. Um, and it's interesting to find that in Matthew 27, 9, we find something equally as evil as Herod murdering all the little Bethlehem baby boys in order to kill the Christ. What we find in Matthew 27, 9 and 10 is uh, a reference to Judas's betrayal money. It's actually a fulfillment of Zechariah 11:12. So what we find here, if you can get a grasp on this, what we find is that Matthew does not ascribe the evil of men 
to the purposes of God. He's saying these things weren't fulfilled so that God's prophecy was fulfilled. He's under, he understands, Matthew understands that God's sovereign providence overrules evil in the working out of his gracious will and plan, as it says in Psalm 76.10. I mean, man did these evils, and God used them, but God was not responsible for those evils, is what he's saying, just by the elimination of that little phrase, so that. All right, now the last thing Herod the Great ever intended to do, you can imagine, was to fulfill divine prophecy. However, that is just exactly what he did do when he issued the order to slaughter the innocents of Bethlehem. Jeremiah 31.15, if you want to go over there, Jeremiah 31.15 contains the words which Matthew tells us about in 17 and 18. Matthew 2.17 and 18, the verses I just read. Those are a fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. Um, now, actually, Jeremiah's prophecy was a, again, it was a type or a picture prophecy, but it was also a dual fulfillment prophecy. So it was two kinds of prophecies. First of all, the prophecy was fulfilled in type or in picture during De Jeremiah's own day. Shortly after Je Jeremiah wrote those words, uh, well, do you want to go there? Let's read them so we're not confused about what we're talking about here. Go to Jeremiah 31:15. Back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31:15. All right, let's read what it says. It says, "Thus saith the Lord: A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Not. See, that's what Matthew was quoting over in verse 18 of his second chapter. All right." Okay, first of all now, this prophecy by Jeremiah was fulfilled in picture during Jeremiah's day, as I said, shortly after he wrote these words. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into Israel, you know, and he destroyed Jerusalem, unlike Alexander, he did destroy Jerusalem, and he took the Jewish people, Rachel's children we could call them, because Rachel was the wife of Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, so we could call her essentially the mother of Israel, the 12 tribes. Um, so he, took, he, he destroyed Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar did, and he took the Jewish people as prisoners. First of all, we know he carried them to Babylon, but first of all, in his first captivity, there were three times he came over to Jerusalem and took people over away from the Jews back to Babylon. But in his first captivity, he took the people to Ramah, which was just a little town north of Jerusalem. It would be on his way back to Babylon. He took the captives to Ramah to dispose of them there as he pleased. And what he did in Ramah was he kind of uh, divided the people. He chose the young out of the crowd, out of all the Jewish people. He took primarily in his first captivity, he took all the young, healthy children and teenagers like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and others like them. He wanted to take them to Babylon and begin a brainwashing process on them. And so what he did there in Ramah is he carried off primarily children and young teenagers. And can you just imagine those young people being separated from their parents? That's what he did. The sorrow at Ramah 
actually, you know, as those mothers are weeping and weeping and can't be comforted because their children are being carried off and they know they'll probably never see them again, that sorrow actually foreshadowed the great sorrow in Bethlehem, nearby Bethlehem and the surrounding area, when um, Rachel's children, again, speaking figuratively here, were killed by Herod, you know, in the slaughter of the innocents. This, these were both sorrows of separation, such as Rachel herself, you know, the literal Rachel, experienced a great sorrow and separation from her son, didn't she, at the time of her death. Remember, she died right outside of Bethlehem, giving birth to her son, Benjamin, who she did not name Benjamin. She named him Benoni, which means son of my sorrow. Now, see, she was lamenting and weeping and couldn't be comforted because she was being separated from her son because of her own death. Of course, these mothers here are crying because of the separation due to their children's death. And those that were carried off to Babylon, it was as good as being dead because they knew they'd never see them again. So a lot of sorrow, a lot of meaning. And this was uh, Jeremiah 31:15 was actually a dual fulfillment prophecy. It was fulfilled at the time of the, the Jerusalem captivity or the Babylonian captivity and again the time of Herod's slaughter of the innocents. Okay. Uh, Let's move now to the, um, oh, I did want to throw this in before we go to looking at part two of our outline, the second trip, Egypt to, to Nazareth. I wanted to say that I feel like those little baby boys, two and under, that were slaughtered in Bethlehem, you know, I believe that, that God takes the innocents into heaven immediately. You know, David sorrowed for his son, and he said, you can't come to me, but I can come to you. Obviously, that little son he lost was in heaven. There's an age of accountability, which I'm not going to discuss when that is, because I think it varies in the individual. But I believe he takes all innocence in, instantly into his presence, and that's what at least gives me comfort about all the aborted babies, that they are in God's presence. Um, and I feel like those little children, those little baby boys who died there in Bethlehem at the hand of hands of Herod's henchmen have a special place in heaven. And the reason I say that is because they actually died in the place of the Savior. <laughs> you know, he he's the one who came and died in our place, but they had this special honor and privilege of dying in his place. So take that for what it's worth. Verses 19 to 21. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Arise, poor Joseph's always having to get up in the middle of the night, isn't he? <laughs> Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Isn't it wonderful to see that Mary and Joseph never complain about any of this? I mean, they're being moved around like little pawns on a chessboard, but they don't utter one complaint. They just immediately always obey God. Well, after Herod's death, Joseph here we find was given another heavenly message. Actually, he received four messages in dreams altogether. And this, I think, is the third. Yeah, this is the third out of four. And this time, an angel instructed him to take the young child and his mother, Mary, and go back into the land of Israel. He said, 
those who had sought the child's life, namely Herod and all of his wicked supporters, were now dead. So it would be, of course, safe for them to return to their homeland. Now, the angel's message to Joseph here in the dream is nearly verbatim the same words that the Lord spoke to Moses. It's interesting. If you look at, you don't need to do this, I'll read it for you, but back in Exodus 4:19, when Moses, you know, was in exile in Midian, after, remember, he killed an Egyptian, and so he, he had to flee from Pharaoh's anger. Pharaoh was going to kill him, so he went out to the wilderness of Midian, and he was a shepherd for how many years? Forty years. And then finally the Lord came to him, and he said to him, Go, return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. Almost verbatim what we have here. All the enemies of God, you know, will one day be dead. Did you know that? Did that ever occur to you? Want to see some of the enemies of God here? Let's see, where are they? There's some of them. <laughs> Although I'm not quite so sure about Napoleon. Napoleon, a lot of people think Napoleon might have been a true believer. Um, but the rest of them, enemies of God, all of them will one day definitely be dead. They may temporarily, you know, for a season, gain some power, but ultimately death is going to take every single thing away from them. We've seen this throughout history. We know it to be true because death is inevitable unless, you know, we're raptured. And that's not certainly for the enemies of God. One day, Osama bin Laden will be dead. One day, Saddam Hussein will be dead. No enemy of God will ever, ever be victorious over death and the grave. There's no power which can avoid these inevitable things except the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's good and comforting news for us. So once again, we read of Joseph's unwavering obedience to the voice of God because he, I forgot to put that up there so you can take a look at that. No sense in me wasting all that time it took me to write that out. So <laughs> uh, he immediately arose and again he obeyed the Lord. He took the young child and Mary and he, he left the land of Egypt and came into the land of Israel. So the prophetic statement made by Hosea, remember, we read it before, Hosea 11.1 1 was fulfilled, where God had said, I will call my son out of Egypt. That was fulfilled. Now, of course, Hosea, the minor prophet Hosea, when he was writing that, he was actually alluding to the historical um, exodus of Israel, as we mentioned, when Israel exited from Egypt, her bondage in Egypt. So how, we ask, how can Matthew say that Hosea's prophecy was fulfilled in this incident of getting Jesus out of Egypt and back into the promised land, back into Israel? Well, it's because, as I told you before, the history of Israel and the life of Jesus Christ are interconnected. They form one larger continuity. The, the earlier which is Israel, is an anticipation of the latter, which is Christ, her Messiah. So Israel, God's son, and Jesus, God's son, were both in Egypt by way of God's divine rescue. And by the way, both of them, if you think about it, both Israel and Jesus were in Egypt 
because of men named Joseph, whom God had led there primarily through dreams. Give you some time to think about all that. <laughs> all right. Um, so they were both in Egypt by way of God's divine rescue. One to avoid death by famine. Another to avoid death by murder. Of course, Israel was in Egypt because to avoid death by famine. Jesus was in Egypt because of avoiding death by murder. All right. The Holy Spirit guided Matthew to to see. Gospel writer Matthew, let me put this up here. This will, this is what corresponds with what I'm saying. Oh, sorry that got all blurred. All right, the Holy Spirit guided Matthew to see the Lord Jesus as living out and summing up the whole history of Israel. This is profound. This is really exciting stuff. Not only is this true in the Egypt experience, but it's true in the Exodus from Egypt that Israel is a picture of Jesus. Or Jesus is the fulfillment of the, the experience of Israel. Think about the fact that they both went through a wilderness experience too. Remember? Jesus, one of the first things before he begins his public ministry is he's in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness for how long? Can you see that? Forty years. And Jesus was in the wilderness for how long? Forty days, forty nights. There's so many wonderful uh, comparisons here. Um, also, Israel pictures Jesus, Jesus in in her sufferings, or in this case, I should his, should say his sufferings and uh, persecutions. Has there ever been a nation as as persecuted and as rejected as the nation of Israel? See, that's a picture of the persecution and the rejection of her Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, she will eventually have victory, ultimate victory. But that victory will only be possible because of him. When she finally acknowledges him, then she will have victory. Okay, so you can uh, maybe take some notes on that and digest that and um, share that with somebody else. Joseph was definitely a good man. Joseph, the father of Jesus, the stepfather. He was a godly, obedient man, which was, of course, necessary for the earthly stepfather of God's own son. He had to have been in very, very close fellowship with God, I believe, in order to have been able to discern the fact that these dreams were indeed dreams coming from God and not dreams that came from another source. I mean, he had to be in close fellowship with God to know that they weren't satanic dreams. I mean, that dream could have been... Satan to get him back into peril, you know, if, if Herod hadn't died. But he was in close fellowship with God. He knew those dreams weren't the product of his own imagination either. He knew they came from the Lord. And to, to know that, he had to be in, in close fellowship with the Lord. He was a godly, obedient man. Okay, let's talk now about Archelaus and his reign. Find out who this man named Archelaus is. Look at verse 22. But when he, that's Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father or in the place of his father Herod, he, Joseph, was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, that's his fourth dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. All right, Joseph was not told, you know, when he was still in Egypt, he was not told to return to any particular area of Israel. 
You know, that was when he received that third divine dream. He was just told to go back to Israel. And he was merely told that uh, Herod and all his henchmen were dead, so it was safe to go back there. It seems as though his first intention was probably to return to where? Where do you think? Bethlehem, right. His first intention would have been to go back to Bethlehem, where Mary and he had been living at the time of the arrival of the wise men. However, when he got within Israel somewhere, he, he soon got word that Archelaus was Herod's successor. And immediately, Joseph had strong reservations about living in Bethlehem. And those, he was afraid, actually, it says he was afraid to go where Archelaus was reigning. And his fear was quickly confirmed by God through another dream. And he was told to instead head back to Nazareth, Galilee. Well, Herod the Great, we find, had changed his will only a few days before his death. One of his major changes in his will was that he left his throne to his most wicked son. One of the sons who spared the sword. (laughs) And this son was uh, named Archelaus. He had been um, fathered and mothered by a Samaritan woman. So what this means is that Archelaus was half, remember Herod the Great was not Jewish. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Idumean. He was an Edomite, in other words. So that means that Herod, I mean, uh, Archelaus, Herod's son, who took his place, was half, did I just say his mother was Samaritan? He was half Samaritan, and he was half Idumean. He wasn't Jewish at all. And you know what the Jews, how the Jews felt about the Samaritans, right? They didn't like the Samaritans at all. They didn't like the Idumeans at all. So this is not a very good combination for one who is ruling over the Jewish people. Well, Archelaus, to give you a little idea of what kind of man he was, and I asked, my husband was helping me out last night with my transparencies, and I said, would you go through my, I have trans, I have hundreds and hundreds of transparencies, and I said, would you go through the file that's called Men's Faces and pick out one that you think looks really mean and nasty and half Idumean and half Samaritan, and this is what Frank came up with, so if you don't like it, blame Frank. <laughs> there I said, well, I don't know that he looks like a king, but anyhow, that's Frank's idea of Archelaus. The very night of his father's death found Archelaus in a wild drinking orgy party with all of his young friends. Now, that gives you a little insight into his character and also a little insight into what he thought of his father, right? I mean, Herod wanted everybody weeping, and he didn't even have his own son weeping. His son was having a party. And shortly after Archelaus took his official position, he had 3,000 Jews slaughtered in the temple. Nice guy. Like father, like son, right? And if that wasn't bad enough, he had that slaughter committed not only in the temple, but on the Passover. On the very day of the Passover, when a lot of innocent people were in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And it was many of those innocent people, you know, people came from all over Israel to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to celebrate the feast. And so it was many of those innocent people who became the victims of his anger over an attempted insurrection by the Jewish zealots. 
who opposed his rule. You know, they rose up against him, and in retaliation, he killed 3,000 people in the temple on the Passover. But many of those people were totally innocent. They had nothing to do with that insurrection. They were in the temple in order to offer their, their, their lambs. And so we find that Archelaus, just like his father, also had a slaughter of innocents. Right? Terrible, terrible, terrible. Terrible things in history, aren't there? Terrible things going on today. Well, Caesar Augustus, remember him of Rome? He's the emperor of the whole Roman Empire. He heard about this early reign slaughter of Archelaus, and immediately, he didn't like it, and immediately he placed him on probation. And immediately he said he was not even to be called a king. Now, his father had been called king. He was King Herod the Great. But Archelaus was only to be called an ethnarch, not nearly as high as the king. And Caesar Augustus cut down his territory as well. Instead of ruling all of the provinces of Israel, he was only to rule over uh, Idumea and Samaria. Now that makes sense since he's part Idumean and part Samarian. And also Judea. Now Judea is where Bethlehem and Jerusalem are located. But he didn't reign over Galilee up in the north or Perea. So his territory was cut down from his father and his title was cut down from his father. He was placed on probation. He didn't pass probation and he only ruled somewhere between six to nine years as people disagreed on the exact time. But he was only in power for six to nine years before Caesar had enough of him and he did depose him. He took him off the throne and he sent him to banishment somewhere. Somebody said Gaul, someone else said Vienna, so I'm not sure where he wound up, but he wasn't in Israel any longer. Now, Herod Antipas, or Antipas, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but he was Archelaus's half-brother. They had the same father, Herod the Great. Remember, Herod the Great was married nine or ten times. Um, they, were both, they were both sons of Herod, but they had different mothers. Herod Antipas had been his father's choice for his successor right up to the end. You know, when I said he was dying, he changed his will. First of all, it was going to be Herod Antipas that would rule in his place, but he changed it at the last minute so that it was Archelaus. So uh, Herod Antipas instead was assigned to rule as ethnarch, another ethnarch, over Galilee and Perea. Now, he is the Herod who had John the Baptist's head removed, okay? All these are great guys. And he's the same Herod who uh, the Lord Jesus called that fox, remember? That's Herod Antipas. And he's ruling Galilee, and, and what city is in Galilee that's important for our story? Nazareth, all right? Herod Antipas is up there ruling as ethnarch. But he is a, he's more tolerant than his father, and he's more tolerant than his brother Archelaus. He's still a bad guy. He's the lesser of two evils, um, but he's not as bad as they were. So when Joseph heard about Archelaus and his early reign of terror for the Jewish people, he became afraid, you know, for his family's safety. To return to Bethlehem, which was located in Judah, would have put them under Archelaus's evil rule, and that would spell out danger. So another heaven-sent dream confirmed to Joseph that he needed to take his family back to Galilee. 
okay? And, uh, you know, as I said, after all, Herod Antipas was the lesser of two evils. So he and Mary and their young child, Jesus, who could be anywhere from maybe three to about um, eight years old at this time, they, they returned to the town of Nazareth. And when they did that, they fill, fulfilled another. Let me put that map up there. There's their trip back from Alexandria all the way back up to Nazareth. In doing this and going back to Nazareth, they fulfilled another Old Testament prophecy. So let's look now at Nazareth receives, and um, for this we'll look at verse 23. And he came, that's Joseph, and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right, once again, Matthew focuses his readers' attention on the fact that the return to the Galilean town of Nazareth had pr prophetic significance. Joseph took his family back to their hometown of Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets would be fulfilled, even though, of course, I say again, Joseph and Mary were probably not aware of what they were doing. They weren't aware of all this. They were just, you know, being obedient to God's voice. Of course, God knew exactly what he was doing. Now, what was the specific prophecy that this fulfilled, them going back to Nazareth? Well, the prophecy itself, and this is prophecy fulfillment number 10 now in our study, it was made some 700 years earlier, this time by the prophet Isaiah. And if you want to go to Isaiah 11.1, 1, you can look at it for yourself. It was a direct prophecy. You know, it spelled it right out, but it was veiled, meaning that the, the, um, the, the people who studied it couldn't understand it. You know, they just couldn't make it out. Hindsight only gave them the vision of what it was. Hindsight gave us, gives us the vision of what it was talking about. But it was a direct prophecy, but it was veiled. And here's what it is. It's, Isaiah wrote this. And there shall come forth a rod. A rod speaks of a ruler. There shall come forth a ruler out of the stem of Jesse. Who was Jesse? Anybody know? Right, David's father. All right, so they'll become a ruler out of Jesse, David's father, and a branch, notice branch is with a capital B, shall grow out of his roots, out of Jesse's roots. All right, this was a messianic prophecy, and that much the Jewish religious leaders did understand. They understood that it was a messianic prophecy. In other words, it was predicting something about the coming Messiah. And as I said, Arad spoke of a ruler, and... Um, for example, Rome ruled with a rod of iron. The Jews knew, of course, that Jesse was David's father, and so they knew that the Messiah, again, was, this was confirming that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. The king was going, the king of kings was going to come from the line of David because of the Davidic covenant. So they understood very well that Isaiah 11:1 1 spoke of the Messiah. They had no doubt about that, but they didn't really get the branch part of it. They didn't really understand that. Uh, Isaiah said that this ruler would be called a branch with a capital B. Now, what's interesting is to find that the word for branch in Hebrew, they don't say branch. How do they say branch? They say netzer or nesser. Netzer or nesser. It is the root word in the name netzeret. 
or Netzareth, which literally means branch town. So it's not coincidence that there is no such thing as coincidence. It's, but it isn't coincidence that the town of Nazareth means literally branch town. That's what it means, branch town. Now, the Jewish scholars missed this messianic prophecy. They knew it was speaking of the Messiah, but they mis missed it. Um, they didn't see that it was speaking of the fact that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. And nobody really understood this until Matthew wrote this, Matthew 2.23. He really unveiled it and told us that the Messiah would be a branch from branch town. In Christ's day, uh, so in other words, he was saying, predicting that the Messiah was to be called a Nazarene. He was to be from branch town. He was to be a Nazarite. Well, not the Nazarite that took the vows, but a Nazarite from Nazareth, all right? Now, in Christ's day, we've already discussed this earlier, being called a Nazarene was an intentional insult. Remember, was it um, Philip? Was it Philip or Nathan Nathaniel? said, can any good thing come from Nazareth? It was a name of contempt among the Jews. Nazareth was, it, it was a place that housed a Roman garrison for the whole northern region of Galilee. And so most Jews would not have any association with the Nazarenes because they considered them compromisers who accommodated, you know, and traded with the Romans who they hated. Also, Galilee, in which Nazareth was located, was known, we've talked about this, Galilee, that whole upper province, was known as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the Nations. It's actually called in uh, Isaiah 9-1. And uh, it, it, was, it was looked down upon by especially the southern Jews, the ones around Jerusalem, because of the fact that Galilee was so heavily populated with Gentiles. Yet from God's perspective, Galilee's large Gentile population, just like the mixed population in the town of Nazareth, that, all of that symbolized the universal significance which Matthew understood in the Savior. In other words, Matthew is saying here, he understands the Savior wasn't just for the Jews. The Savior was for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. For by one spirit are we all baptized in one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. So it's very significant that Joseph was told to go back to Nazareth, a despised town, branch town, a town populated with many Gentiles in Galilee of the Gentiles. Because remember the prophecy that said the people who sat in darkness would see a great light? Most of the Lord's earthly ministry was spent up in Galilee. Those people sitting in darkness, many of them Gentiles, saw a great light. The light shined upon them. That's a fulfillment actually of Isaiah 9 too. Well, being called a Nazarene also served as a prediction of the Lord's rejection. It, it, it actually foreshadowed the fact that he was despised among his own people. And notice that Matthew 2.23 tells us that this was a fulfillment of the prophets, not just singular prophet. So in addition to Isaiah 11.1, 1, which said, you know, that he would be a branch, that a rod out of the stem of Jesse. In addition to Isaiah, 
there are other prophets who spoke of a messianic branch. I want you to go to a few of them just so you can see this. It's so interesting. Um, flip over, if you would, to Jeremiah 23.5, for example. Jeremiah 23.5. You'll find there that that the Messiah, and they understood that this was also a messianic prophecy, no doubt about it, but they didn't get the branch part. He's called a righteous branch there. You see that? And branch, again, has a capital B. It says that he, you know, he would be a king from the line of David, and he's called a righteous branch. You'll see that a f uh, ten more chapters over if you go to Jeremiah 33:15, You see the same thing. And then, uh, I know you can't go this fast, but in Zechariah 3.8, these are all in your notes, I think. Zechariah 3.8, the Lord says, My servant, the branch. And you know how he spells branch in that passage? Capital B, capital R, capital A, capital N, capital C, and capital H. All capital letters. The Lord calls him my servant, the branch. And again, the same thing is in Zechariah 6.12. So that is all so interesting. It's all really prophetic, speaking of the fact that Jesus would be a Nazarene. He would be from Branch Town. And there's also a number of um, prophecies which speak about the lowly character of Jesus. You know, being called a Nazarene, as I said, was really a prediction that he would be rejected. Nazarenes were, were despised and rejected. You know, for example, in Isaiah 53, it says that he would be despised and rejected of men, that he would be a man of sorrows, and that he would be acquainted with grief. And then you, all you have to do is look into some of the Psalms. So this was a fulfillment of the prophets, plural. As a Nazarene, Jesus was despised, and he was rejected even before he began his public ministry to the nation of Israel. In fact, you know, the early Jewish persecutors of the church actually used the very fact that Jesus Christ was from Nazareth. They used that as evidence that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. And yet we find the opposite is true. Matthew revealed the truth for us. He stated that because Jesus was a Nazarene, he did fulfill messianic prophecy. You know, if he had not been born in Bethlehem and taken to Egypt and come out of Egypt, if he had not been raised in Nazareth, and if he had not presented his light of truth in Galilee, to the Gentiles up there sitting in darkness, Jesus Christ would not be the fulfiller of God's prophetic word. But he was and he is. Can you imagine those scribes, the Jewish scholars, scratching their heads when they read the prophecies and they say, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, yet he's supposed to come suddenly into his temple, and yet he's, God says he'll call his son out of Egypt... So sounds like he's going to be an Egyptian. But how can he be an Egyptian if he's born in Bethlehem? And yet he's supposed to be from Branch Town. He's a Nazarite. And that's up there in Galilee. How can, how can he come from three? How can one come from three? That's what my little poem is in there, in the notes, all about. And yet, from God's perspective, it all worked out. We can see it from hindsight, how perfect it is. And how he fulfilled every one of those prophecies, right? He was born in Bethlehem. 
he did come out of Egypt, and he was raised in Nazareth, so he was known as a Nazarene, a Nazarite. And also, he did come suddenly to his temple one day when nobody even knew who he was, and he cleansed it. So where did this guy come from? Who, is, who does he think he is? Oh, it's just wonderful. You know, that's why we don't need to worry about how... If you ever study the book of Revelation, you say, how are all these things going to fit together, come to pass? Don't worry about it. God will work it out. He'll orchestrate it just like he did. The Lord's first coming, his second coming will be... When we see it from hindsight, we'll say, oh, I get it. Now, let me just close quickly with the last thing here. And that's Luke 2.39. If you go to Luke 2.39 real, real quickly, I want to show you an advantage of studying the Gospels the way we're doing it going from one to the other to the other in sequential order. If you look at Matthew, I mean uh, Luke 2.39, you'll find that um, Luke made absolutely no mention of the Lord, the Holy Family going to Egypt. Look at verse 38. It says, And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Who's that speaking of? Anna in the temple when the Lord Jesus was 40 days old. And then we go to verse 39. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, if you only had Luke's gospel to go by, you would say, hmm, there is no account of the wise men at all. There is no... Uh, account of Herod's murder of the innocents, you know, in Bethlehem. There's no account of all those dreams and of Joseph being told to go to Egypt and then being called out of Egypt and then going, then going to Nazareth. All we have is them really, it sounds like they go straight from the temple when he's 40 days old up to Nazareth. So I want you to understand, and that doesn't mean that Luke's account is in error. He just saw no point in writing those things because Matthew had already written his gospel. Luke was followed Matthew. So he thought, well, there's no sense in writing all that. That wasn't his main thing to write about. Matthew had done that. And so he just tells us when they go up to, to Nazareth. But this, for us, is the advantage of studying um, the Lord's life using all four Gospels, because we get the complete picture, you see, going from one to the other, the way we are doing. And that's why I just wanted to point that out. That is definitely one of the advantages of using a harmony of the Gospels such as we are doing. Okay. That is the end of our lesson. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for being a God with such infinite wisdom that you could predict the future. Of course, you know the end from the beginning. But you could predict the future with precision accuracy and in such a manner that no mere individual, no mere man could ever manipulate the events of his life to fulfill all of these messianic prophecies such as Jesus Christ did. Thank you that only you, Father, could arrange the circumstances of the true Messiah's life so that each and every prophecy concerning him did find its complete fulfillment in him. We praise you, Lord, for your omnipotence. We thank you and praise you for your, your greatness. We thank you for your intricate ways, that your ways are so much higher and better than our ways. We thank you for having the easy solutions to those problems which seem to us, from our perspective, to be so insurmountable. Because this tells us that we can know for certain that all those seemingly complicated and confusing prophecies which are yet to be fulfilled at the time of the Lord's second coming, they will appear just as smooth and simple as the prophecies we now look back on which occurred at his first coming. 
thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and through your son. And I thank you most of all for the hunger of these women. I pray, Lord, that they are being satisfied and that they will go forth from here sharing what you have taught them through your holy word. Lord, I now ask that you'd go with each of us safely, uh, bring us back safely next week, put a hedge of protection around us, and use us as light to a dark world in the meantime. For we pray in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. God bless you. Have a good week.